All right, welcome back to the Fitz News Studios for the Week in Review. I've got my Gamecock, Shamecock, what do you want to call it? <laughs> Based on the last football game, shame is probably the appropriate way to go. But ready for football again this week, South Carolina versus Vanderbilt, a must-win game for second-year head coach Shane Beamer. But this week we've got huge news in the Murdoch Murders, Crime, and Corruption saga. I know, I feel like I say that every week, but again, this week the hits just kept coming as we dig into the Hollywood component of this story. Tinseltown coming to town, talking Murdochs. We're going to get into all that. I'm also going to offer political predictions. Who's going to win the South Carolina governor's race? What about that contested congressional race down in the South Carolina first district? I'm going to give you some predictions that you can bet the house on. All that and more heading your way on the Week in Review. All right, so I've got a coffee mug that pretty much sums up this edition of the Week in Review. Can you see that? The shit show has been preempted by a dumpster fire. We will return to the regularly scheduled mayhem shortly. How about that? That was sent by a a viewer. I love that. I love that. But that is, yeah, that is our week in a nutshell, folks. It was just one thing after another on the Murdoch murders, crime, and corruption saga story that this news outlet has been covering for the better part of a year and a half now. Uh, just... Every time you think you know where it's going, it takes you in a new direction. I think that's the only way to describe it. But this week, no exception. No exception. And I want to back up the tape a little bit to last fall when I wrote, did some videos on the Hollywood component of this story. Because from the very beginning, I think everybody knew, particularly after the Labor Day incident over a year ago when Alec Murdoch paid one of his... Uh, check cashers and drug buddies to pop up a round off near his head. I don't know if it actually hit his head. There's some question about that. But that Labor Day roadside shooting incident, which, by the way, resulted in the first criminal charges tied to any of these Murdoch-related investigations, that incident, after that, it was a feeding frenzy, an absolute feeding frenzy with national uh, you know, networks and streaming services. You name it. Everybody wanted a piece of this story, this Southern Gothic drama that you know, has these intricate layers, these complicated, convoluted legal dynamics, and of course, a cast of characters that's um, you know, straight out of a Grisham novel. So everybody wanted a piece of that, right? And so over the last few weeks, last few months, we started to see the fruits of that feeding frenzy start to manifest themselves on, on our small screens uh, across the country. And this week, one of the, I would say, bigger budget, more detailed, more in-depth productions uh, dropped on HBO Max. And this is a three-part documentary. It's entitled Low Country, and it delves into the Murdoch family and some of the events, again, that this news outlet has been covering for, again, o over a year now. Um, but what was incredibly interesting about this documentary was in, it contains some footage that we had never seen before. We knew about this, this footage. We knew it existed. We knew what it depicted. But until this documentary came out, we had never seen it. And the footage I'm referring to uh, are video surveillance images of Alec Murdoch, of his late father, Randolph Murdoch III, uh, Grandpa Handsome. God, I hope that's what they call me when, when my kids have kids. Right. I hope I'm Grandpa Handsome. Apparently, though, he was called that because he was not that handsome. Anyway, I digress. Alec Murdoch, Grandpa Handsome, 
arrived at the Beaufort Memorial Hospital. Early morning hours, February 24, 2019. Now, that's in the immediate aftermath of a boat crash that took place near the Archer's Creek Bridge down in Beaufort County, South Carolina, just north of Paris Island, South Carolina. This is the crash which, again, propelled the Murdochs onto the statewide stage, which got the, the avalanche going on this whole story, this family, which for years had operated as kind of a a fiefdom, if you will, down there in the South Carolina Low Country. But it was this story, this boat crash, and Alec Murdoch's conduct in the aftermath of the boat crash, which, by the way, launched a, a statewide grand jury investigation into alleged obstruction of justice related to that inquiry, and an investigation which I'm told is still ongoing, one of the many facets of this Murdoch saga. But it was that video, which, again, had been we knew about it. We'd read about it in reports from the South Carolina Department of Natural Resources, which is the agency which investigated the boat crash initially. Uh, but it, it depicted Alec Murdoch and his father essentially attempting to orchestrate uh, the aftermath of that crash in an effort to get Alec's son and, and, and the late Randolph's grandson, Paul Murdoch, off the hook for, for this incident. Now, it, it was unsuccessful. Paul Murdoch was charged by the Office of Attorney General Alan Wilson with three counts of voting under the influence. He was scheduled to stand trial, but again, was murdered before he could stand trial, uh, allegedly by his father, Alec Murdoch. But this footage appearing in this in this documentary, it was just a you know bombshell in this in this saga. My text messages started lighting up, uh, Twitter DMs. Um, even the messages they send me on the TikTok, because I'm so on the TikTok. Started getting TikTok messages about it. I mean, it was just everybody wanted to know where did this tape come from? And the theory, which made sense if you if you look back at this story, the theory was that it was attorneys uh, acting on behalf of Greg Parker, who owns the convenience store where Paul Murdoch bought alcohol prior to this boat crash. And, and Parker and his store have been sued in a wrongful death case, along with a bunch of Murdochs. And so there's been sort of a, a back and forth, as we've repeatedly chronicled, a, a, a war, if you will, between the defendants with Parker and his crew trying to impugn uh, the Murdochs, which, by the way, talk about an easy job, making the Murdochs look bad. Wow. You can get paid for that? Okay. Anyway, um, not a difficult task, but that's what Parker's been doing. And so part of that campaign has been leaking, allegedly, allegedly, information from the confidential files from that wrongful death case, the mediation attempts, which have repeatedly failed. But this hospital footage was was a key part of that, was a key part of that. So how in the hell did it end up in the hands of the HBO producers? Good question. Well, we found out our answer a lot quicker than you find out most things in the Murdoch murders, crime and corruption saga. You usually have to wait, you know, 13 months for indictments. You wait months after that to get some, even a timeline of what they allege happened. But nope, in this one, we got some immediate, rare, immediate incident gratification. Attorney Joe McCulloch, Columbia, South Carolina-based lawyer who represents one of the uh, passengers on that boat on that fateful uh, early February morning, issued a letter uh, to the court in that case, taking responsibility, saying that he inadvertently 
provided the video. I don't know how you inadvertently do that. Do you trip and press a button on your computer? I don't know. Inadvertently release the, uh, the email to HBO Max. Now, a lot of folks praised McCulloch. They basically said, oh, look, here's a guy owning up to what he did. Isn't that rare in South Carolina? Yes. Shouldn't we commend him for it? Yes, a lot of people said, but I'm not I'm not so sure about that. And I like Joe. I think Joe's a good guy. I've always gotten along with him fairly well, but I don't necessarily buy this whole excuse that he's putting out there because here's the thing. This tape and this footage has been at the center of debate for months. Not weeks, not days, months. Because it's gotten out there, folks, to a number of different people. Where and how, we're still not sure. But this is not a new debate. And for an attorney to come in at the last minute and say, oh, I didn't know. Uh, McCulloch's excuse, by the way, was that he thought that the tape had already been turned over through a Freedom of Information Act request. Well, a lot of people have sought that information. But it had never been released. And the argument that McCulloch's critics claim is, hey, hey, there's no way. He thought that. There's no way he thought that. So the question now is, what is the court going to do? What is the hospital going to do? Because, again, this is footage that the hospital has, I think, not completely without justification, claimed could constitute HIPAA information, medical privacy information. And it's now being plastered on a documentary. That's a serious thing, people. And I think that McCulloch is going to have to answer for it because if I'm the judge in this case and I'm reading that letter he sent, my response is not, oh, let's credit this guy for taking responsibility. No. My response is, what is this BS you're trying to sell me, Attorney McCulloch? You knew what you were doing. I think it'll also be interesting if McCulloch gets deposed, how much money did he get paid for releasing that? What kind of deal was made in accompanying that release? Again, very interesting to see what happens with this, but I don't think the court can let him go with with a slap on the wrist. I think this is a serious violation of a court order. And again, it's nothing against the HBO people. They're they're going to take what they can get. Now, Ventress McCulloch did say, this is funny, that he had contacted HBO and asked them to remove this footage from their documentary, which, by the way, is already streaming all over the world. Okay, yeah, good luck getting that toothpaste back in the tube. But anyway, we're going to continue to follow that because, folks, this is not the first Murdoch documentary. It won't be the last. In fact, I'm told reliably that there's some incredibly handsome journalist that's going to be appearing in a much bigger uh, documentary related to this story. I don't know who that could be. God, but I'm told he's just devastatingly handsome (laughs) and has a mellifluous but not lugubrious voice. Anyway. But there's a lot coming on this story, folks. And and as you watch these reports, it's important. You know, again, take it all with an ocean of salt, you know, whether it's what you read on my site, whether it's what you hear on a podcast, whether it's what you read in the mainstream media, whether it's what you watch on one of these documentaries. Again, check the info. Is it sourced? Do they link to the documents? Do the arguments make sense? Use your use your common sense. And also use your common sense in ascertaining whether or not the people who are bringing you those reports, whether they care about getting to the bottom of this story or not. Now, speaking of getting to the bottom of the story, I want to pivot now that we've talked a little bit about that. I want to pivot to the real news 
from this documentary. This week, we were preparing a story. Research director Jen Wood and I were working on it about Alec Murdoch's evolving alibi for the night of the murders, June 7, 2021, and how that alibi has morphed and shifted and changed shape. And it's basically a, a chameleon alibi, people, is what it is. It just continues to change colors depending on the background and new facts that are brought to light. But this documentary is significant in how it delved into that alibi. And I wanted to bring our research director, Jen Wood, who was on the show last week, I wanted to bring her in for a segment that explores that alibi, incorporating the very latest comments from the HBO documentary by Murdoch attorney Jim Griffin. Let's cut real quick to Jen Wood and that review of the alibi. So the alibis and narratives coming from Alec Murdoch's defense team and family have been evolving for over a year now. After watching the new HBO docuseries, Low Country, which included an in-depth interview with Alec Murdoch's criminal defense attorney, Jim Griffin, the Fitz News team thought it would be a great opportunity to put everything we know into one timeline for y'all. So we're going to go ahead and start with that quote-unquote airtight alibi of disbarred and disgraced attorney Alec Murdoch. You know, the airtight alibi, which for almost a year following the brutal murders of 52-year-old Maggie Murdoch and their 22-year-old son, Paul, revolved around Alec taking his very sick father, Randolph Murdoch III, to the hospital in Savannah. So this narrative first developed when John Marvin Murdoch and Randy Murdoch, who are Alec's brothers, appeared on Good Morning America on June 17, 2021, just 10 days after the murders. In that appearance, John Marvin and Randy claimed that on the day Maggie and Paul were murdered, Alec had taken their father, Randolph, to the hospital. After that, he reportedly checked in on his mother before returning to the hunting property known locally as Moselle. Okay, so that narrative is the narrative that stuck until Alec's brother, John Marvin Murdoch, pulled the rug out from under on May 10th, 2022, when he did an interview with Seton Tucker who's the host of the podcast, Murdoch Murders, Impact of Influence. So in this interview, John Marvin reportedly told Tucker that Randy called him on the day of the homicides and asked him to take their father to the hospital in Savannah. That's right. Totally changed the story from what they told Good Morning America in June of 2021 to him taking his father to the hospital in Savannah. So John Marvin further elaborated that when he went to pick Randolph up at their home in Elmida, South Carolina, he actually ended up taking Randolph to the hospital in Savannah in his mother Libby's car. So why that matters is that John Marvin told Tucker that he had asked Paul Murdoch to pick up his truck from their home in Elmida and drive it to work the next day, and that it was his truck that Paul had driven to Moselle. Okay. So let's let's just take a second and look at the disintegration of an airtight alibi. That's what it looks like. So here are my questions. Were Randy and John Marvin simply confused? Or did they flat out lie to Good Morning America? My next question is, when investigators initially interviewed them, which story did they give them? That Alec took Randolph III to the hospital or that John Marvin did? I have a lot of questions. Those are the big ones. Though. Okay, so now we're going to take a look at what we know about Maggie and Paul and the hours leading up to their murders. 
Friends of Maggie Murdoch told Fitz News in late April that on the day that Maggie and Paul were murdered, Paul had worked at his uncle John Marvin's equipment rental shop and ate dinner with his uncle's family at their home in Okatee. According to these sources, Paul left Okatee for Moselle at around 6 p.m. So the drive from Okatee to Moselle typically takes approximately 55 minutes, and this would place him at Moselle around 7 p.m. But let's remember, if he stopped in Omida to get his uncle's truck as John Marvin had asked him to, according to Seton Tucker, that's obviously going to add to his drive time. Well, this is where it gets interesting. This week, Alec Murdoch's attorney, Jim Griffin, elaborated on the timeline of the double homicide on HBO Max's new docuseries, Low Country. Griffin told HBO that Alec had arrived at Moselle at 6.30 p.m. from work, and he drove around the fields with Paul, quote-unquote, inspecting the property. But let's take a look at this. If Paul left Okatee, as reported by our sources at Fitz News, did that give him enough time to get home to drive around the property and inspect it with Alec? Seems kind of tight to me. According to Griffin, at some point that night, Maggie, Alec, and Paul all ate dinner together. After dinner, Maggie left to go to the kennels to quote-unquote run the dogs, and Paul went outside because Paul always goes outside. But Alec did not know exactly where Paul had gone. Jim Griffin claimed that Alec fell asleep on the couch while watching TV, and upon waking up at 9 p.m., he decided he wanted to go check on his mother as dementia and lives in Elmida. Griffin said that Alec called both Maggie and Paul's cell phone and neither of them answered. So he texted Maggie and said, quote unquote, I'll be right back. He stated that Alec left Moselle and drove to his parents' home in Elmida, South Carolina. So are you confused? Well, don't worry. I think attorney Jim Griffin might be as well. So let's take a step back and ask a few questions. First of all, Did Jim Griffin film the segment for HBO prior to the October 20th, 2022 hearing? Because how could Alec be asleep on the couch until 9 p.m. when the state has him on a video with Maggie and Paul taken at 8.44 p.m.? Just doesn't make any sense. So Paul's death certificate states that the coroner estimates his time of death to be at 9 p.m. A motion filed on November 1st, 2022 by the prosecution states that the murders occurred between 8.30 p.m. and 10.06 p.m. So we're kind of narrowing down that time frame. If Alec was asleep on the couch and woke up around 9 p.m. and places calls to Maggie and Paul's phones that go unanswered, as Jim Griffin told HBO, were they dead at 9 p.m.? If so, wouldn't Alec have heard a gunshot? When Maggie and Paul didn't answer his calls, didn't he notice their cars were still there when he left and wonder what they were doing? I have so many questions. Um, I don't think we're going to get answers anytime soon, but those are my questions. Jim Griffin also told HBO that Alec was on the phone from 9.03 to 9.21 p.m. while driving to his parents' house in Elmida. Now, prosecutor Creighton Waters in that hearing on October 20th, claimed that evidence is going to show that Alec left Moselle for Elmida at 9.06 p.m. So, finally, those facts kind of lined up. Not exactly, but kind of. So, um, Jim Griffin saying that Alec is on the phone starting at 9.03. Creighton says that Alec leaves Moselle in his car for Elmida at 9.06. 
So Griffin continues on with this timeline to HBO, saying that at 9.21 p.m., Alec called his mother's nurse's aide on their home phone and asked to be let in. Griffin stated that Alec watched a game show with his mother for 20 minutes and then left again at 9.41 p.m. So, 20 minutes, the nurse's aide. So, is the nurse's aide the witness who allegedly saw Alec carrying something wrapped in a blue tarp at his parents' house in Elmida, as Fitz News reported last week? Again, so many questions. Griffin continued with the narrative to HBO, stating that Alec drove back to Moselle and called friends along the way. Griffin says that Alec arrived at Moselle a little after 10 p.m., and we all know that the infamous 911 call was placed at 10.07 p.m. Seriously, folk, we're talking about Hollywood and the Murdochs. Give, give that guy a, an Academy Award for that performance. If, if all this is what we think it is and that's the call, give that guy an Academy Award for that performance. But believe it or not, this wasn't even anywhere near the extent of our Murdoch news this week. Carmen Mullen, the judge who has been at the center of this storm almost from the very beginning, back in the limelight in a big way this week. We filed a lengthy report on the heels of some great investigative work done by multiple other outlets, including the Murdoch Murders podcast and the Charleston Post and Courier, related to Carmen Mullen. But we dug a little deeper. We delved into a story that hasn't really been talked about much as it relates to Mullen. And that's the fact that she was the judge on a state house corruption case back in 2018 that ended with basically no accountability for the elected officials who basically sold their offices, as well as the special interests that were pulling those, those strings, the strings of those elected officials. Now, why was there no accountability? Because Mullen refused to insist on it. In fact, she argued against tough sentences, even when the initial prosecutor in that case, David Pascoe, pushed for them. Now, again, I've criticized Pascoe for some of his role in this story, but on one count, he was absolutely correct. And that was that Mullen repeatedly repeatedly engaged in improper ex parte communications in that case, not only with his office, but with some of the other parties in that case. And one instance that was referenced in a 2018 motion filed by Pasco, I want to bring this up because this is very important. In April 2018, David Pasco filed a motion in connection with that probe gate investigation in which he alleged that Judge Mullen came to him and again, this was in December 2017 when this allegedly happened, and asked him to tell her who the targets of the investigation were. And specifically, she asked him to tell her whether or not Governor Henry McMaster, who's about to get reelected to his second term, he'll end up being in office for 10 years if he wins, asked if Governor Henry McMaster was on the list of targets. Okay, first of all, whatever the reason for this, it's completely inappropriate to even have the conversation. You can't have an ex parte conversation. That, by the way, is a conversation with 
only one party to the legal action with at the exclusion of the other parties. You can't have the conversation, but you sure as hell, a sitting judge asking a prosecutor, tell me who you're targeting. Tell me who's going to be indicted. It's utterly inappropriate. And let me tell you what makes it even more appropriate. Months prior to Mullen asking this, her husband and her husband's law firm contributed seven grand to one of McMaster's opponents in the 2018 governor's race. That's right. She was asking for inside intel on an investigation involving a potential political rival. If what Pasco claims is accurate, that is beyond the pale, people. Beyond the pale. And, and, and it goes to, again, to the very heart of the ongoing politicization of our judiciary in South Carolina and why that must stop. When you create judges who are political animals, who are looking for the politics, not the truth, looking for the power, not the facts, you got problems. You got problems. And Judge Mullen failed in every capacity in the probegate investigation. And guess what else we found out? I want to give a shout out to another reporter. I've criticized him often as well, but John Monk from the state newspaper filed a report in September of this year with an update on the status of this investigation because it's still ongoing, folks. Richard Quinn, the ringleader of this uh, alleged pay-to-play network, is still facing perjury and obstruction of justice charges. They are now being pursued by the Seventh Circuit solicitor, Barry Barnett, up in Spartanburg. But Mullen has repeatedly delayed hearings in this case. In fact, Monk filed a story again in September detailing how long Mullen has waited to take action in this case and has called, called her out for her repeated failure to take action, to hold hearings. Again, 17 months ago, Quinn was reindicted on perjury and obstruction of justice charges. 17 months ago, hasn't even gotten a hearing. Hell, we're, we're going from indictment to trial in the Murdoch case in six months, less than six months. It's the biggest case in the state's history. And this guy can't get a hearing in 17 months? And Mullen's at the heart of it, folks. It just continues. So I wrote a column this week calling on the South Carolina Supreme Court to remove Mullen from the bench or at the very least to suspend her pending a full investigation, not only of her conduct in the Probegate case, but as it relates to the Murdoch story. Because remember, she's the judge who was involved in that sketchy Satterfield settlement, the settlement Gloria Satterfield, the $4.3 million that Alec Murdoch stole, according to state prosecutors. Her name was on one of those filings. And attorneys Eric Bland, Ronnie Richter, pointed that out, called her out for it. Again, Mullen has got to go. And I want to credit all those reporters I mentioned earlier for their role in bringing her story to light. All right, so we're pivoting to politics, and we're a couple days before the election, obviously. It's coming up in just two days now, three days, something like that. I don't know. I don't vote. <laughs> I mean, seriously, give me something to freaking vote for, right? Anyway, I should not say that. You should vote. <laughs> If you want to. Anyway, on that note, uh, inspiring for democracy, let's talk about my predictions for this upcoming election, because I cannot remember a less competitive election cycle in South Carolina. It used to be 
Democrats ran the state. White Democrats ran South Carolina until about 1990, which is when the pendulum started shifting to white Republicans. Now, are the white Republicans any different than the white Democrats? No. No, they've just gotten smarter about drawing districts to keep black Democrats in very specific districts where their numbers are very limited, which makes all these other races incredibly un, uh, uncompetitive. So you have a, a paucity of competitive elections in South Carolina people. You have absolutely no competitive elections at the statewide level where you got the Republicans owning both U.S. Senate seats, all seven independent, independently elected statewide offices, near super majorities in both chambers of, of the legislature. But anyway... What has Republican rule done for South Carolina? Mm. Follow my site and you'll see the economic, academic, and infrastructure, social outcomes. None of them good. But anyway, um, 2020 saw a red storm in the Palmetto State. People, the Republicans cleaned up here in the Palmetto State. But 2022, we're going to probably see an even greater surge because, again, national numbers are pointing to a Republican romp in the U.S. Congress, possibly Republicans taking control of the U.S. Senate. Uh, last I checked, the generic ballot had the Republicans up by about 3% over Democrats. And again, that's a, an amalgamation, if you will, of, uh, of national polls, which have consistently uh, undervalued the GOP vote. So I think it's probably higher than that. Uh, if you look at those numbers, though, real trouble for Democrats at the congressional level. And it starts with Joe Biden, or rather his teleprompter, uh, whoever feeds the teleprompter for Joe Biden. Um, Biden's approval languishing. Uh, meanwhile, his disapproval uh, in the mid-50s. And according to a recent Trafalgar poll, there's a real intensity problem for Democrats when it comes to the president, too, because the people who like Biden, mm, they don't like him very much. The people who don't strongly disapprove of his performance in office. So again, Democrats not only have a numbers gap they're looking at, but an intensity gap as well when it comes to how motivated people are to cast ballots this year. Now, how does that factor into my predictions? As I look at my crystal ball here and put on my Swami hat, I don't have a Swami hat, but if I did, I'd be wearing it right now with a, a crystal ball. Here's what I'm picking, people. Incumbent Republican Governor Henry McMaster, he's going to get 53% of the vote. On Tuesday, Democrat Joe Cunningham, 42, 42. And if you, you notice that doesn't add up to 100, there is a third party candidate on the ballot and there will be some potential write-in votes. Now, in the competitive, ostensibly competitive first congressional district, incumbent Nancy Mace, who just beat Cunningham in the last election, is going for a second term and she's going up against Annie Andrews, a Democrat down there. Now, how's she going to do? It's going to be 54 percent Mace. 44% Annie Andrews. So a 10-point win for Nancy Mace down there in the 1st District. That's my prediction. Now, here's the other thing I'm very interested in. It's a race where the outcome's already decided, and that's the 4th District race where William Timmons, who has been the focus of some serious scandal over the last few months, self-inflicted, I might add, not, not only in terms of what he did, but how it got out there, all of it self-inflicted. Anyway, Timmons is unopposed, but he is facing... A write-in challenger, a write-in challenger, uh, Lee Turner. And, and here's the question. What percentage of the vote is the write-in challenger going to get for William Timmons? Uh, I'm going to go with 3.6. And if you think, well, that's nothing. For a write-in candidate, folks, that's actually pretty big. And I'm, I'm very eagerly following this race and a write-in campaign in rural Oconee and Pickens counties where a powerful state uh, legislative leader 
Bill Sandifer is facing a credible write-in challenger. I'm going to be very interested to see how that write-in vote com uh, comes into play, again, at the congressional district level and at a House district level in that race there in Oc Oconee County. So count on Fitz News. We're going to keep you up to speed. We're going to hold ourselves accountable. I'm going to hold myself accountable on how well my, my predictions are there. But, um, but it is going to be a Republican romp in South Carolina this year, folks. Uh, write it down. Uh, if you've got some savings, I would uh, not hesitate to bet the house. Uh, although with these interest rates, you know, maybe maybe now's not a good time to lose the house because uh, you sure as hell don't want to be buying one in this climate. But I digress. All right, a couple quick additional notes as we close out this political segment. I did want to point out there's some interesting trends in the early voting. As you know, this is the first general election in South Carolina in which early voting has been allowed. Now you're thinking, wait a minute, what about 2020 and covid Yes, but that was expanded absentee voting, people. That wasn't early voting. This is the first election where you actually have the chance to go to an election commission in the weeks leading up to the big vote and cast your ballot early. And, and a ton of South Carolinians have done that, um, more than half a million. And in fact, we got some data on those numbers. And so far, it looks like the proportion racially is about what, what the proportion is for the state, consistent with previous elections, roughly 24.4% African-American turnout. It is interesting, about 55% of the electorate has been female thus far, which is a bit higher than typical. But here's the real interesting stat, and this goes to something I want to address as it relates to Joe Cunningham's campaign and why I'm predicting a larger Henry McMaster victory than some are. Old people are voting in droves, in early voting people, more than 68% of those early ballots are from people who are age 62 or older. That is a huge, huge number. And again, I want to remind people, we reported on this back in August. Joe Cunningham held a press conference up in Greenville, said he was going to end the geriatric oligarchy in South Carolina. Well, folks, the geriatrics are voting. So it'll be very interesting to see whether or not that comes back to bite Joe Cunningham. Uh, also an interesting move by Cunningham. We've just been handed this reporter, Joseph Bustos of the state newspaper. Let's give him some credit for getting this out there. Apparently Cunningham has sent a mailer to voters saying that he will appoint a cabinet half Republican. It's a Democrat, folks. And he's going to appoint a candidate half Republican. Now you're thinking to yourself, okay, well, that's nice. Sure. Okay, bipartisan, you know, as I mentioned earlier, there's not a lot of difference between these two parties in South Carolina, but is Cunningham's move going to help him electorally and eat into that big margin I've been talking about? It's not. And let me tell you why. Number one, no Republicans in South Carolina are going to be swayed by a last minute piece of mail, not in this election cycle, not when the GOP romp is going to be so large. But here's the other problem with it. Not only is Cunningham not going to pick anything up from this stunt, this is going to be huge fodder for that progressive base. They've been angry with him since the primary people. They think he's McMaster Light, a centrist Democrat. He's not a real progressive. They have been suspicious of him from the beginning. And so the fact that he's now promising to put, give half of his cabinet positions away to Republicans, again, if they needed an excuse not to vote for him before and, and, and didn't have one, they've got one now. And again, I would also point out that Cunningham huge problems in the in the Democratic primary this year on the racial front. Ran against a, a credible black Democrat, Mia McLeod. The party tried to keep that race under wraps. There was a lot of racial tension, if you recall, with folks believing that the black vote was being undervalued, uh, underemphasized. Cunningham's tactics in that race 
very clearly indicated that he wanted to keep that race under wraps too, agreeing to, again, only one debate with McLeod. So huge issues there. We've also learned that the black activists, who, again, are incredibly key in this race, are also not enamored with Cunningham. Apparently some failed promises dating back to his congressional career. And one other point on the racial front, we talked about the geriatric oligarchy earlier, Cunningham's plans to get rid of it. Guess who one of the politicians who was very upset by that remark happened to be? Jim Clyburn, the only Democrat in the the South Carolina delegation in the U.S. House of Representatives, an incredibly powerful man in Washington, D.C., and an incredibly influential person when it comes to getting Democrats elected uh, in South Carolina, something they just haven't done with any success in decades. I want to bring this stat up before we go. No Democrat, no Democrat has won a statewide election in South Carolina since 2006, and no Democrat has won a top-of-the-ticket statewide election since 1998. Is Joe Cunningham going to break that streak? Well, let's see. He's pissed off black people. He's pissed off old people. And he's pissed off progressives. You do the math, people. My prediction stands. Henry McMaster in a landslide. Uh, that's a wrap for this week's edition of the Week in Review. want to appreciate everybody for tuning in. We didn't get into Cheer, Inc. this week, even though it was a huge week on that story. We covered it extensively, though, on the Cheer Incorporated podcast, which reminds me, check it out, Apple, Spotify, wherever you download your podcasts. And if you like it, please submit a review and, more importantly, share it with friends, particularly if you know anybody who's got kids in that cheerleading industry. Incredibly important that they listen to that show, folks. We'll be back. Next week, where we'll be able to find out whether or not my political prognostications came to pass or not. Am I a genius or just another Palmetto Politico talking out of his backside? Mm, Either or, folks, could be the case. But stay tuned for all that and much more in future editions of the Week in Review. Thanks for tuning in and thanks for supporting Fitz News.